Yo, this is the Ancient Texan. Uh, for the next few weeks, maybe a few months, we're discussing a book, When Things Fall Apart, by Pima Kadron. Heart Advice for Difficult Times. I think if uh, you make some effort on this book, it can make a difference in your life. Anyway, I'm enjoying it and learning from it. This is the Ancient Texan. Yo, this is the Ancient Texan. Uh, We're going to do chapter 8, Eight Worldly Dharmas. I found this a great chapter, and I actually relate to it quite a bit. It kind of brought some of the previous chapters into focus for me. We might feel that somehow we should try to eradicate these feelings of pleasure and pain, loss and gain, praise and blame, fame and disgrace. A more practical approach would be to get to know them, see how they hook us, See how they color our perceptions of reality. See how they aren't aren't all that solid. Then the eight worldly dharmas, dharm, dharmas become the means for growing wiser, as well as kinder and more content. That's kind of a summary of the chapter. I think it'll make more sense as we go along. Uh, This is some classic Buddhist teaching about the eight worldly dharmas. And there are a list of four things we're attracted to and four things we don't like and try to avoid. And if you're caught up in these dharmas, the theory goes, you can't be happy, can't be content. Here's some specifics. First, we like pleasure. We're attracted to it. Conversely, we don't like pain. Second, we like and are attracted to praise. We try to avoid criticism and blame. Third, we like and are attracted to fame. We dislike and try to avoid disgrace. Finally, we are attracted to gain, to getting what we want. We don't like losing what we have. That kind of sums up human existence. According to this very simple teaching, becoming immersed in these four pairs of opposite, pleasure and pain, loss and gain, fame and disgrace, and praise and blame, is what keeps us stuck in the pain of samsari, samsara, pardon me if I don't say them right, Whenever we're feeling good, our thoughts are usually about things we like, praise, gain, pleasure, and fame. When we are feeling uncomfortable and irritable and fed up, our thoughts and emotions are probably evolving around something like pain, loss, disgrace, or blame. Wow. What a neat summary of the human condition. 
We like to think we're so different, but we're kind of like everybody else. Let's take praise and blame. Someone walks up to us and says, you are old. Well, if if you're like me, um, to hear that you are old, mm, that's not going over real well. You kind of feel blamed like it's something you did. Um, certainly not um, not on the good list of feelings. But if you're a young kid, say, eight years old, and you hear you, you are old. Um, I remember the first time I was told, you're a young man, and use that that word man I heard that and you know that was a good good thing to hear tell my wife she's old and that's not so good um I actually kind of like the gray hair I started getting it gray gray beard gray mustache get a little respect I always kind of thought of that as distinguished but what we're talking about here is the story that we put around the words. Many of our mood swings are related to how we interpret what we hear. We carry a subjective reality that is continually triggering our emotional reaction. Someone says, you're old, and we enter into a particular state of mind. And so, we're hearing something, reacting to it, and creating our what we think is our reality. Words are spoken, letters are received, phone calls are made, food is eaten. Things appear or don't appear. We wake up in the morning, we open our eyes, and events happen all day long until we go to sleep. A lot is happening in our sleep, too. All night long, we encounter the people and events of our dreams. How do we react to what occurs? Are we attached to certain kinds of experiences? Do we reject or avoid others? How hooked? Do we get by these eight worldly dharmas? So kind of one view of life is that, you know, dreams are a lot different than reality. And we like to believe, you know, when we're awake, that our conscious mind um, guides us. Um, But there's a book, uh, The Righteous Mind, it talks about this quite a bit. You actually hear something, see something, experience something. You have an emotional reaction. And most of your logic is used to explain your emotional reaction. It's not the other way around. The elephant you're riding is emotion. And the rider on the top is the rational mind, the logical mind that tries to explain why the elephant just went left. Um, And that's kind of the reality. Now, we, we don't like to hear that 
because we have worked a lot on logic in our culture. But the majority of us and the majority of our decisions are not made um, by a logical thing. You get a gut reaction. It turns out your gut reaction is right like almost all the time. And then you rationalize it. But on those occasions where your logic has to override your gut reaction, that's the exception. And most of us are not very good at that. So in reality, what's happening in a dream, you know, the story and the experience may be weird or, you know, defy, it can defy, uh, you know, laws of physics. You know, you can fly in your dreams. But the emotional reaction you have to it is very similar to the emotional reaction you have in daylight to what actually does happen. Now that's a hard pill to swallow. Uh, but that's pretty much what the science says. The irony is that we make up the eight worldly dharmas. They're a creation. We make them up in reaction to what happens to us in this world. There are nothing concrete in themselves. Even more strange is that we are not all that solid either. We have a concept of ourselves that we reconstruct moment by moment and reflect, reflectively try to protect. Who you are is not something um, concrete. How you behave and your characteristics and all that. You have an image of who you are that you try to like hold together and project this image of, I am a logical engineer, I am a beautiful, reasonable woman, I am a whatever you have and all the little nuances of yourself is a construct in your mind. And the people around you may not even have the same construct of you. Um, and there's a thing called uh, white fragility, uh, which is when you tell somebody that uh, they're racist or they have implicit racism, they hear them that you are implicitly racist living in this culture. Well, the reaction of most white people is, no, I'm not racist, you don't know me, blah, blah, blah. And they go on the defensive even before they have a chance to, you know, discuss the concept of implicit racism. I don't like to hear that I'm racist. And, you know, and I'll, and I'll acknowledge it in some global sense that I probably have some racism in me. Um, but if you got down to the, the specifics, and if any of those specifics contradicted my view of myself, I would resist it and I would protect my image of myself more to myself perhaps than to you because you probably, especially if you don't know me well, you don't necessarily have an image of me. You have an image of a typical person and you project that on me. But it's all, uh, it, it, you know, we strive for being honest and many other things, objective, logical, kind. Um, but how close that is to reality, uh, I, I don't think there's necessarily a strong correlation to the image that we protect of ourselves. Uh, and to realize that that's actually fluid and dynamic, 
and situational how we see ourselves. Um, that's not that's not the way we think of the world. So there, there's some uh, real big implications if this is even half right. <clears throat> but this concept that we are protecting is questionable. If it's all much ado about nothing, like pushing and pulling a vanishing illusion when you're talking about protecting your image. You know, so you might come to the conclusion we should somehow eradicate the feelings of pleasure and pain, loss and gain, praise and blame, fame and disgrace. But a more practical approach would be to get to know them, see how they hook us, see how they color our perceptions of reality, see how they aren't all that solid. Then the eight worldly dharmas become the means for growing wiser as well as kinder and more content. To begin with, in meditation, we can notice how emotions and moods are connected with having lost or gained something, having been praised or blamed, and so forth. We can notice how what begins as a simple thought, a simple quality of energy, quickly blossoms into full-blown pleasure and pain. We have to have a certain amount of fearlessness, of course, because we like it all to come out on the pleasure, praise, fame, gain side. We like to ensure that everything will come out in our favor. But when we really look, we, we're going to see that we have no control over what occurs at all. Well, I'm still trying to digest that. We all have all kinds of mood swings and emotional reactions. They just come and go endlessly. The kind of twist I add to this in my own way of thinking is I have an emotional reaction um, which then triggers some thought to explain what just happened. Um, And then I build a story around this little emotional reaction and a few thoughts and I build a story and then that story deepens and preserves the mood that I'm having Uh, and I recall past events that what my wife always does this and this always happens and blah 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 and then I'm hooked in this cycle of uh, past emotional responses and past thought patterns and away I go. People usually call that being triggered. Um, But I think there's also need to recognize that we as humans process everything in terms of a story. We make up stories as we were story machines. Um, And our emotions and thoughts get... uh, pulled into building this story and reinforcing our thoughts and uh, our feelings. And there's nothing really very logical about it. And once you realize in your story, if you can learn to recognize that, you can stop 
ask yourself if that's the only story. And then even more is, you know, being able to look for facts and evidence that there's another possible story. And then to let yourself emotionally release yourself from that story, to just kind of let it. And, and there's kind of a cool thing. Emotions don't last forever. Um, I've, I've read in a couple of places, they're about a 90-second event. And if you don't, but in that 90 seconds, if you can build a story um, that reinforces that emotion and uh, kind of feed it, you can keep it going for, you know, my wife can stay mad at me for days. She used to, but we're pretty good on this story thing now, and we're both learning to, you know, let go of it. Um, you can stay in this emotional state for a long time, but you got to keep feeding it. And to recognize that you're feeding it uh, and that you're constructing the situation that you're in, uh, you can learn to let go of it. Sometimes we're going to find ourselves completely caught up in a drama. We're going to be just as angry as if someone had walked into the room and slapped us in the face. Then it might occur to us, wait a minute, what's going on here? We look into it and, it, and we're able to see that out of nowhere, we feel that we have lost something or we've been insulted. Where this thought came from, we don't know, but here we are, hooked again, by the eight worldly dharmas. Right then we can feel that energy, do our best to let the thoughts dissolve and give ourselves a break. Beyond all that fuss and bother is a big sky. Right there in the middle of the tempest, we can drop it and relax. Well, that's my... Of course, I agree with it. That's what I just said. But I think... the. Realizing that we think in stories is a um, kind of an extra tool to help us drop uh, this emotion. Because if if you don't see you're in a story, I don't think you can just drop an emotion. You have to see that you're building a story and stop building the story and look for alternate stories and give yourself you know 90 seconds to to unplug let kind of let the charge drain away one might be completely caught up in a delightful pleasurable fantasy we look into it and see that out of nowhere we feel we have gained something won something been praised for something what pops up and up is out of con- our control totally unpredictable like the images in a dream but up it comes, and we're hooked again by the eight worldly dharmas. The human race is so predictable. A tiny thought arises, then escalates. And before we know what hit us, we're caught up in hope and fear. Okay, so this isn't a you know, quick cure. Um, this is a philosophical point of view that I think has a lot of value. But 
is like anything else, you've got to kind of work at it and be aware. And it's lucky if you got a partner that you can work with on it. Um, but how do you change your life? I go on reading, we can explore these familiar pairs of opposites in everything we do. Instead of automatically falling into habitual patterns, we can begin to notice how we react when someone praises us, when someone blames us, how do we react? When we've lost something, how do we react? When we feel we've gained something, how do we react? When we feel pleasure or pain, is it as simple as that? Do we just feel pleasure or pain? Or is a whole libretto that goes along with it? I was reading a book on emotions, and it, it turns out our, you know, like you can have a feeling in your stomach that you think is fear. Uh, and this author that was writing the book, which I forgot the name, uh, thought she was having a real bad case of fear in this circumstance she was in. It turns out she was having appendicitis. Your emotional system doesn't really give you a very, you know, it gives you comfort, discomfort, and a, you know, pain. I mean, it, it, it's pretty primitive, the number of signals your body actually gives you. But what happened is you take that feeling, and then in the context of what's happening around it, you construct an emotion um, Then you thoughts spring up, and then the story springs up, and you're on your way. Um, but it's emotions are contextual. Uh, your nervous system is actually pretty primitive in the signals, and you learn to interpret uh, the signals. And we don't all d- interpret the same, and small variations in the environment and the context can completely change the same signal from your nervous system into different, quote, emotions. Because uh, emotions by themselves don't have, you know, words and thoughts and uh, built on top of them. We, we put that there. Uh, when we become inquisitive about these things, look into them, see who we are and what we do with the curiosity of a young child. What might seem like a problem becomes a source of wisdom. Oddly enough, this curiosity begins to undercut what we call ego pain or self-centeredness, and we see more clearly. You basically get to know yourself. Usually, we're just swept along by the pleasant or painful feelings. We're swept away by them in both directions. We spin off in, in our habitual style, and we don't even know what's happening. Before we know it, we've composed a novel on why something is so wrong or why we are so right or why we must get such and such. When we begin to understand the whole process, it begins to lighten us up considerably. Um, What she calls writing a novel, I call making a story. We are like children building a sandcastle. This is a good image. We embellish it with beautiful shells, bits of driftwood, and pieces of colored glass. The castle is ours, off-limit to others. We are willing to attack if others threaten to hurt it. Yet, despite all our attachment, 
We know that the tide will inevitably come in and sweep the sandcastle away. The trick is to enjoy it fully, but without clinging, and when the time comes, let it dissolve back into the sea. Wow, this is about life and death and our fears. I mean, it's pretty fundamental, this sandcastle analogy. This letting things go is sometimes called non-attachment, but not with the cool, remote quality often associated with that word. This non-attachment has more kindness and more intimacy than that. It's actually a desire to know, like the questions of a three-year-old. We want to know our pain so we can stop endlessly running. We want to know our pleasure so we can stop endlessly grasping. Then somehow our questions get bigger and our inquisitiveness more vast. We want to know about loss so that we might understand other people when their lives are falling apart. We want to know about gain so we might understand other people when they are delighted or when they're getting arrogant and puffed up and carried away. It's about, you know, knowing yourself, understanding life, understanding the way we function. And the more we can do that and become better in ourselves, the more when we see someone else uh, caught up in a story, a tragedy, a life event, we can sympathize and have compassion. When we become more insightful and compassionate about how we ourselves get hooked, we spontaneously feel more tenderness for the human race, knowing we're all kind of in the same boat. Knowing our own confusion, we're more willing and able to get our hands dirty and try to alleviate the confusion of others. If we don't look into hope and fear, seeing a thought arise, seeing the chain reaction that follows it, if we don't train in sitting with the energy without getting snared, snared by the drama, then we're always going to be afraid. The world we live in, the people we meet, the animals merging from the doorways, everything will become increasingly threatening. Understand it or be controlled by it. So we start by simply looking into our own hearts and mind. Probably we start looking because we feel inadequate or in pain and we want to clean up our act. But gradually our practice evolves. We start understanding that just like us, other people are getting hooked by hope and fear. Everywhere we go, we see the misery that comes from buying into the eight worldly dharmas. It's also pretty obvious that people need help and that there's no way to benefit anybody unless we start with ourselves. Well, you might look at all the race stuff going on right now. There's enough praise and blame and fear and all that whole issue. And the stories that both sides are caught up in um, make it really hard to untangle it. Look at the conservative South and the Confederacy and that holds what a complicated story. Pride of the South. Uh, I grew up there. I know 
a little bit about that. Look at the black people, what they've endured, and the stories they have from slavery to the present. Uh, look at the policeman that's been taught to be a tough guy, and kind of the macho image, and the team com- com- camaraderie that holds them together and they protect each other. Look at those complex weaving of stories and all the emotion that's there. Um, that's all held in place by um, each has an image of themselves and they have a constructed story um, that's hard to, to tear down. I mean, George Floyd, um, <coughs> pardon me, that's shocking enough that uh, it's breaking down some of those stories, but uh, those stories will come back. I mean, that part of what happens in all these traumas we go through, the immediate impact seems uh, very strong. But people revert back to their old way of thinking, their own story, their own image of themselves. And, uh, you know, that big event has an effect in the present moment. But you let a few weeks go by and things go back the other way. Plus, there's a lot of vested interest, but that's kind of beyond the scope of this chapter. Our motivation for practicing begins to change and we desire to become tamed and reasonable for the sake of other people. We want to see how the mind works and how we get seduced by samsara, but it's not just for ourselves. It's for our companions, our children, our bosses. It's for the whole human dilemma. Well, I wish I'd known more of this when I was raising my kids. Um, I'm not sure they saw the calmer, more gentle person that I am now. And yet I know that my kids have a construct of me that's built on a lifetime and the progress I've made in the last few years doesn't change the construct they have of me as something that happens very slowly. I've learned to just sit with things and not try to convince the world of who I am, let them observe. Um, Not to convince myself of who I am, just try to be in the moment uh, and patiently wait for myself and those around me to evolve and change and quit trying to force as many things. Anyway, I, I find this uh, really great chapter and it kind of fits into the, the view of life that I'm, my model, my story of how life works. Um, but this, you know, eight dharmas, the two sides of the coin, praise and blame, the whole whole setup of, you know, pleasure on one side and pain on the other and we're always seeking to stay on the <clears throat> pleasure side and avoid the pain side uh, and we do that 
uh, not so much in the physical world, but in our mental, inside our mind and emotions. Anyway, this is the Ancient Texan, hoping you find this of value. And Oh, by the way, I've noticed I'm up past 10% of my listeners from Ireland. Uh, shout out to you. 2% from Canada and I think England's at a percent now. A bunch of other places. Really cool to be talking to different people around the world. Uh, hope you have a good day. This is the Ancient Texan. Namaste. Namaste.